And what we've landed on is that the way you make disciples, the way Jesus showed us how, is that you embody him. You become in him and he becomes in you. You are united with Christ. And that means there's a transfer of his values to our values. And so making disciples simply means that I embody the values of Jesus Christ in such a way that when my life comes in contact with people who don't know Jesus Christ, who aren't in him, that my values and the world's values collide in such a way that there's a challenge and there's an appeal, there's an attraction to come away from the world's way and move towards Christ. So we've been looking at what are some of these specific values we're supposed to develop in our lives? What are some of these things that, that Jesus is that you and I can embody and grow in? And then how do we use relationships that we have to, uh, to call people to that kind of living? So this morning I'm going to be reading to you um, two passages of Scripture. One in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll start there. And then we'll also go to Philippians chapter 3. As we're moving in that direction, good morning to those of you who are watching us on Facebook. And welcome to those of you that are listening uh, to our podcast online. We're glad that you're tuning in. If you're watching us on Facebook, here's what would be awesome. Like, like the little post that you're watching right now. Let us know that you're there. You can comment and say, I'm here. And then if you log off later on, you'll kind of get credit for listening to the whole thing. So we'll just know that you were logging in and everything else. Um, if there's something in here that sounds good that you think other people would like, would benefit from knowing, just share it. And in that way, we can take what we're doing here with a couple hundred of us and touch a couple thousand of us. Uh, before I read this passage, I do want to just make a brief statement and a response to uh, an incident that many of you are aware uh, happened here at Perry Hall High School this week. There was, um, this has been reported by WBAL-TV. Those of you that have students here at the high school received an email from the principal. There was, uh, there was a fight that took place in the parking lot between several students that got ugly and it was recorded by somebody and put on social media. And so uh, this week, the principal called for an increased police presence here on the property, sent an email to all the parents, and the public outcry has been one of fear, and understandably so. Uh, parents are afraid to send their kids to school. They, you know, they've beefed up the security presence here. There is an investigation going on to try and get to the bottom of what happened and what charges need to be pressed. Um, this is where we meet on a Sunday, and I just want to connect a few dots for you very briefly. That's not heavenly activity. That's demonic activity. This is uh, what the Bible tells us the enemy does is he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. He intimidates, he bullies, and he wants to make people afraid. And he's letting this community know through that type of event that this is not going to be a safe place as long as he has something to do with it. So my response is that next Sunday morning at 9.30, 30 minutes before service starts, I'm going to lead a prayer walk here where I'm going to pray around the perimeter of this parking lot, and we'll pray up and down these hallways, and we'll anoint lockers, and we'll pray. Those of you who want to join me can. We're reaching out to the principal to let him know that we're going to be doing that, and talk to Ms. Kathleen, let her know that we're going to be involved in that, and any of the teachers and faculty that would like to be here with us at 930 for us to pray over them, they're welcome to join us as well. Because here's what I believe. This year we've been called to multiply and occupy, and the enemy said this is a territory I don't want to give up, and what we're going to pray is that God releases not just a physical security presence, but a spiritual security presence all over this school all over this property, that angels will manifest themselves when students want to do things that aren't right and it'll scare them into knowing Jesus. We're not praying against students. We're praying against the evil spirits that are motivating students. They need to be set free from that. And so there's a church already in this space. And this is our time to step up and serve our community in prayer by making this a safe place that people don't have to be scared to send their kids to. Isn't it just like the enemy to take three students out of a couple thousand and convince everybody that a couple little demonic activities over here, as serious and real as it is, should make us all afraid. We know we can put those things to flight in the name of Jesus, right? 
So if you'd like to join me next Sunday morning, you can. Will it be spooky? Are we literally going to march? No, we're just going to gather out here. I'll give you some instruction. Those of you that want to walk around the parking lot and pray, you can join me outside. Those of you that want to stay in where it's warm, we'll pray in here, and we'll just spend 30 minutes doing that. That's part of the way we can serve our community. We've been praying all over this community this year, and uh, we've shown, the enemy's shown his cards that he's going to fight over this territory. We're not going to back down. So if you want to join me next Sunday morning, I'll meet you right out here in the lobby at 9.30, okay? Sound good? All right, let's, let's move in on this. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He writes, therefore, if anyone is, and here's the phrase, in Christ. That's what we're going to be talking about today, what it means to be in Christ. It's an important phrase to Paul. He uses it 156 times in the letters that he wrote. If you write something 156 times, it's important, right? I will not chew gum in class, right? Okay, trying to get something through you. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. One of the foundational verses of what it means to be in Christ. It means, how do I know if I'm in Christ? It means if you are in Christ, you're a whole new creation compared to what you were before you were in Christ. It says the new you, a new identity has arrived. The old you has gone. What a breathtaking, interesting stimulating statement to consider. Then he writes in Philippians 3, and this might sound familiar uh, to you because we just sang it, the second song, middle song of our worship set is this verse put, these verses put to music. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider these things, and if you want to know those things, he itemizes that list. He schedule A's that list, and like the first verses of this chapter, you can go back and look at these things that he says he now thinks are garbage. He says, I consider them garbage so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of my faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his suffering. I want to become like him in his death. And so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Amen. That, those verses fire me up. Those get deep into my soul because that's a prayer that I pray. I want to get to a place like Paul did where I can say every other thing that the world can offer me by comparison to Christ, seems like garbage. What's most important to me is I want to know Jesus. I want to know his power. I want to participate in his sufferings so that one day this body can be resurrected from death and live eternally with Christ. So what's the big idea? Here's, we're going to go after authenticity today. It's a fun word. Let's define what that is. Because disciples are supposed to be authentic. And what I want to show you is that there is a flawed, faulty, false definition of authenticity that is spreading across Christian churches in America. I want, to call it on, I want to call it out. I want to correct it. And then I want to experience what it's like for us to come together and invite the Spirit of God to mold us and shape us more into His image because that's authenticity. The big idea is this, that authentic disciples, what does an authentic disciple do? Here's what they do. They live in conformity with their beliefs in spite of their feelings. This is what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus. It means your life, your thoughts, your attitudes, your behaviors are conformed to the truth of the Bible regardless of whether you feel like it or not. Regardless of what your feelings are telling you. 
True disciples say, my feelings are real, but they're not always true. And my feelings surrender to the facts and my faith. I don't put my feelings in my life up top because that's the way the world works. Whatever feels or seems right or wrong, comfortable or uncomfortable, that is where you start and then you find facts to support your feelings and whatever you believe about God trails behind. That's not disciples. Disciples say, this tells me who I am. This tells me who I'm not. This tells me who I was and who I can be. This tells me how I can live in Christ. And so these are the facts. And there will be times that what this says will confront how you feel. And in those moments, a disciple says, regardless of how I feel, if this is true, then that's how I act and I'll trust my feelings will come along for the ride. Phony, halfway, whitewashed Christians say, This is true unless it contradicts how I feel. And then in those cases, what I feel is most important, and I will cherry-pick parts of this and take it out of context to prove my feelings are okay, or I'll just ignore those parts altogether. That's not authentic. That's phony. That's halfway. That's the way the world thinks. It won't attract anybody to the gospel. So, uh, authenticity. Um, I'm, I have a hobby. My hobby, you're going to probably think less of me. Well, I don't know if that's possible, but you'll think less of me a little bit. I collect baseball cards. Uh, I did when I was a kid. I collected them for a long time. I sold them to pay my first year of college. And then about five years ago, I started collecting again. The hobby has changed a lot. So you can collect all kinds of baseball cards, but I, spe- I specifically collect vintage baseball cards, so those before 1980, or... Uh, I collect authenticated, autographed baseball cards. Um, Those come in a bunch of different varieties. I brought two of my collection with me this morning, and uh, someday when we're in our new facility, we get better cameras. I can show these to you for now. You're just going to have to trust that what I'm showing you is the truth. This uh, This is an Adam Jones authenticated, autographed baseball card. Um, How do you know that it's authenticated and autographed? Well, this is made by a company called Tops. And on this card is printed on the front and on the back the following statement. Tops certified authenticated autograph. And on the back it says that this autograph is guaranteed to be authentic and was witnessed by an employee of Tops. Could they be lying? Sure. But the value of this card is based entirely on how how we can prove its authenticity. What does it mean to be authentic in baseball card terms? It means being true to the the original. And so the more pristine and perfect the autograph is, and the more highly credible the source of authentication is, the more valuable it is. Another thing that makes it rare is this card is stamped with an individual number. They only made 45 of this card. This is number 14. There's only 45 of this specific card in the world. I have one of them. So it makes it more rare and more valuable. Well, what makes it less valuable? Number one, if it's proven to be fake or false, that's not good. And it makes it worth nothing. The, uh, the other thing is that the, the beauty of the autograph itself. I have one that is completely flawless. The pen wasn't smudged. 
It wasn't blurred. The corners are perfect, and I protect it. I put it inside of an ultra-pro magnetic one-touch UV-protected case. I keep it under lock and key in a dark room of my house in waterproof, fireproof containers. Because to protect its value, I have to make sure it never diminishes from the original. The more that this diminishes, the more that this blurs, the more that this smudges, the more this gets damaged, the less it's worth. So this one was authenticated by Tops. Then there's another one. I chose these ones specifically because they're Orioles players. I don't collect just Orioles players. Um, this is a different one. This one is Brooks Robinson. Now, some of you have seen his autograph. It's a train wreck. Okay? And a lot of his autographs are not pristine. They're written all over the place. They're crooked. They're off the page. I happen to have one that's completely pristine. It's centered. It's right underneath this guy's face. It's flawless. There's no smudges. And it has a double authentication. It was authenticated by Tops, And it has a gold stamp that says it was authenticated. Then we send it to a third-party independent authentication service called PSA DNA. They are the world's largest authenticator of autographs. They print it on the top and they give it a grade between 1 and 10. 10 is the highest. It's called a gem mint. And if they agree that it's an authenticated autograph, they will also give it a grade. This perhaps one is rated gem mint 10. It's the most perfect of the perfect. Then they put it inside of a tamper-proof, encapsulated, weatherproof, windproof, waterproof, tamper-proof, permanently sealed plastic UV container. I can't open it and get the card out. It is permanently encased in there. And then they stamp across the top what it is and on the back they triple check with a hologram this is a very valuable card because you can go get Brooks Robinson to sign a piece of paper and put it on eBay and it might be very real but people don't know whether you're an authenticator or not this one is very very real and what do I do I protect these things I don't want it to be smudged in any way I don't want it to be tampered with I want it to be as true to the original value so that someday down the road, whether I decide I want to get a different card and trade it, like recently, I just I had one card that I bought for $18 that now is worth $600, so I sold it. It's, at some point, too, it's not just a hobby. It's like it's an $18 piece of cardboard that I got $600 for. It can be a whole lot of other things, so I sold it this last week. I bought more baseball cards. I have a problem, you know. <laughs> I paid my tithe, and I bought some baseball cards. What are you driving at? That's what authenticity means in the world, staying true to the original. And what are collectors trying to do? They're trying to make sure that the original never decays. For a disciple, you know, you and I have an original blueprint. Genesis 1.26 tells you what our original is, how you and I were made. Do you know what it says? What was our original image? Genesis 1.26 says, let us, this is God speaking, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is created by God. And you were created by God with his original signature on you. You were created with the intention of being as holy and pure as he is. As clean as he is. As righteous as he is. As close to him so that you and him are one. That's how he made man. That's how he made Adam. That's how he made Eve. That was the original signature. But that signature is not so pristine anymore, is it? Is it? We're blurred. We're bent. We're damaged. Authenticity to a disciple simply means I recognize 
that unlike an autograph, I'm not in my gem mint 10 form. I'm broken. I'm blurred. I don't look like the original. But in the reverse order, but I can through Jesus be restored back to gem mint 10. I come to him damaged. And he exchanges my rap sheet for his. And the original is stamped into my spirit again. And then I journey with Christ. And he restores me. And I start craving holiness and righteousness. Purity, love, gentleness, patience, generosity, power, courage, and boldness again. And so you see, for collectors, authenticity is all about taking something that's pristine and keeping it from decay. And for disciples, it's all about saying, I come to Christ in decay, but I'm coming back to him, knowing that in him, not through my own efforts, but in him, I can be holy and pristine again. That's what authenticity is. It's in your notes, value number four. Authenticity means this, disciples remain true to who they are in Christ. That's the part of the definition I'm trying to tack on. Here's the messed up definition that's going around. It's very similar. Here's a definition I see flourishing all over Christian churches in America. Disciples remain true to who they are, period. I hear things spoken all over the place that sound like this. We're broken people. We're all damaged. You'll be fine here. You'll fit right in. There's truth to that, but there's an incompleteness to it. Here's what I see happening. I'm seeing more often than not, and it starts in the pulpits, and it's gone the whole way down to the pews, there is this movement towards being transparent and broken publicly. We're starting to gravitate towards people whose whole platform is this. Look at how flawed I really am. I have the courage to tell you about all my sinful habits, about all my sordid pasts about the things I still struggle with. I'm very open about it. I'm very transparent. I don't mind sharing it with people. And that's become like this new badge of inclusion. And now we want to get around in little groups and we want to just share our, our garbage with everybody in our group and it stops there. It's like if I, if I come to this group and I, you know, this person says they're struggling with this addiction and that person says they're struggling with that habit, I'll fit right in. Now, if you cut me off here, you're going to think I'm anti-recovery program. I'm not. I'm all about recovery program. I'm just telling you that's step one, not step 12. What's happening is this. We're telling the world all it means to be a disciple of Jesus is just to come here and confess. Just own up to all your garbage and we'll welcome you right in and that's, what, that's as good as it gets as a Christian. No, 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 no. The Bible has a word for that stuff. It's called sin. And it doesn't glaze over those things. It does need to be confessed. It does need to be owned. We do need to be transparent. But what happens is if you stop there, you simply say, yeah, I know I told that person off. I'm just being a good mom. That's who I am. Is that who you are or who you are in Christ? There's a difference between being outspoken and being mean-spirited. There's differences between being... uh, uh, (laughs) Good with your finances and stewarding over your money and being greedy. There's a difference. And what I'm afraid I see happening is Christians have settled for a version of authenticity that said it's all about just admitting our mess. And that's it. 
being true to who we are. In other words, what we're saying is my feelings are who I really am, and they're real, and your feelings tell you things, and your feelings are not always based on truth. Sometimes you misinterpreted something. Sometimes you've got it wrong. Sometimes your feelings are steering you. Haven't you ever had someone that just had a very short, a boss that said something very short, very quick to you, maybe blew you off in the morning, and you walked away, and you interpreted it as that my job's on the line. They really don't like me. And you never went back and investigated what went wrong, and it just put you going down the hill. That's not what disciples do. Disciples say, I know who I am in Christ. There's a me that I am that's not in Christ. And there's a me in Christ. And what I find people doing is say, I want the benefits of saying I'm saved and going to heaven without any of the accountability for having to change who I am in Christ. I want to be able to lump all my old behaviors and say they're now okay because I prayed a prayer over here. That's not what the Bible says. Disciples are authentic to who we are in Christ. That means there's sometimes there's a you you don't feel like being, but that's who Christ is. You're not being authentic by saying, I know I should be patient, but today I'm just feeling grouchy, and God's okay with that because there's grace. And if I'm patient and I don't feel like that, that's being phony. No, 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 that's being a disciple. That's having integrity. Integrity is when you act the way you know the Bible says you're supposed to act even when you don't feel like it. That's not fake. That's integrity. And I am sick and tired of washing down that message to a world that knows they're broken. And the only thing we're giving them is saying, well, we're just as broken as you do. We just feel better about it because we talk about it. We're offering them community, but no transformation. I want you to be transparent about your brokenness. I want you to be honest about the things that are going in your life, but let's call it what it is. Sometimes it's sin, and it needs to be confessed of and turned away from, and we need to find transformation and deliverance for it. I want you to know that I try and be transparent and clear about what my brokenness and what my issues are, but that's, not who, that's who I was outside of Christ. In Christ, I'm not irreparably bound. In Christ, there's freedom for me. In Christ, there is power to be patient when I'm feeling impatient. In Christ, there is, there is confidence and security when I'm feeling depressed and insecure. In Christ, there's boldness when I'm afraid. In Christ, there is, there is joy when I'm feeling blue. In Christ, there is, there is wisdom when I'm feeling confused. That's who I am when I get to be in Christ and he's in me. It's my new identity. That's who I am now. I'm not that other guy. That's who I was. That's not who I am. In Christ, I'm a new creation. Authenticity means we will remain true, not just to who we are. We remain true to who we are in Christ. And sometimes who I am in Christ is going to confront and challenge who I really am. But can I ask you a question? Every time that happens, isn't it more attractive to be who you are in Christ, even those moments? Well, I know that I should really stay pure and not be sleeping around with my boyfriend before we get married, but, but man, it just feels right. We've already started. I don't know how to stop, and you know, so I'm going to go this way. But isn't it more attractive to say, I wish I just could? I wish I just could be pure. I wish I could be absent. I wish I could stop. I wish I could put the reverse switch on here. I wish I could. There is an attraction that happens when you, oh, I don't have time. I'll just say this. When you're in Christ, all your attractions and deep desires begin to be challenged and changed. You used to be hungry for selfishness. Now you're hungry for generosity. You used to be hungry to be in charge of your life. Now you're hungry to surrender more. You used to be driven by your feelings. Now you're driven by facts. What do you mean by that? It's kind of like a choo-choo train. I have a choo-choo train here. My son let me borrow it. Again, I know you can't see it real well. It's three cars. It has an engine whose name is Thomas. 
It has an empty car because we lost the hay that went in it. And it has a, it has a caboose. Is that word's caboose? And in life, all of us have three cars in our life. And here's the way they're supposed to be. Uh, the engine is supposed to be facts or truth. And that pulls along our faith, which is inspired and informed by the facts and the truth. And then you have their feelings. And that's the way it's supposed to work. Our feelings are fueled and pulled by truth and facts and by our faith. But here's the reality. You can take, because these are magnetic, you can take this train and arrange this car however you want. You can put that caboose right there on the front and say, my feelings are going to pull everything around. And if my feelings... Don't line up with the Bible. The Bible says I should really take a harder stance on this, but it's going to cost me some friendship. So I'm going, to, I'm going to put this one up here and find verses that make me feel better about that. My feelings are going to guide this, and then my faith can just follow through. Anytime you get these things out of order, you still have a train, but it's not designed the right way. Okay? The reality is, as a Christian, we say the Bible trumps all. The Bible is the ultimate source of truth. And from the Bible, I get revelation about who God is, and that builds and inspires my faith. I wanted to put the red one at the end. It's messing me up. The red one's supposed to be the caboose, but the blue one's the caboose. That inspires my faith. And my feelings, they're real, but they're not always the most reliable thing. We're all entitled to our own feelings, not our own facts. My feelings get pulled along at the very end. Where are you going with all this, Pastor? Well, I'm out of time, so I have to kind of cut (laughs) cut to the engine. Two primary questions to explore. What does it mean to be in Christ? How does one become in Christ? I had five things to talk about. I'll give you one. In Christ, I have a, what does it mean to be in Christ? What do you mean? It means I have a completely new identity. Completely new. Oh, now, oh I know how to illustrate this. Let's make it even faster. So, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians six seventeen says this. The moment you are in Christ, that means ABC. How do I know if or not if I'm in Christ? Have you, have you accepted him at salvation? Have you admitted A? That you're a sinner and you need saving. That you're in your decayed, flawed form and you need, you need someone to deliver you. A. B, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Not the Jesus that History Channel tells you about. The Jesus of the Bible. As he reveals himself to you. That he is the son of God. That he exchanged places with you. That in him, you are a marble dropped into a big thing of dough. And when we put the dough all over it, you are hidden in Christ. Who he is, is inseparable from who you are. Do you believe that? And see, have you chosen for him to be your Lord and Savior? The moment you do that, that verse I just told you about in Corinthians 6, 17 says, God's, all of God's spirit is united with. The Greek says fused together with yours. What is in God's spirit? A couple things the Bible tells us. Some things that are in God's Holy Spirit. Knowledge. Everything God knows is in his spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that. Even the hidden secrets of heaven are in God's spirit, Paul says. But God has freely given us his spirit and gives us access to things God knows that we don't know. And he can reveal them to you in real time. Did you know that came with the Holy Spirit when you got saved? You have access to the things that God knows? I didn't know that I got that. It doesn't work for me. You haven't learned how to work that app yet. All kinds of stuff in there. Power, Bible says. You've received the power that if the same spirit, the same power which rose Jesus from, his, from the dead quickens you in your mortal body, it dwells in you. The same power that brought a body back from the dead when you get saved now lives in your spirit. It's not out there somewhere, it's in you. What does it mean to be in Christ? Christ means anointing. Anointing means God's authorization or permission to act on his behalf. 
You got all of his authorization and permission to act on his behalf when you received salvation, when that spirit was fused inside of you, that indwelling spirit. What else is in there? All of the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, the whole list. Well, God, I need more of that in my life. Send it to me. He's already sent it to you. You're just not living it out. It's in there. All of the courage, all of the power, all the bonus, all of the gifts of the Spirit, they're all everything you need. Now, God distributes gifts of the, I don't want to get too confusing. God distributes gifts of the Spirit severally as he will through the Holy Spirit. So we might not get all, however many there are, but God gives you gifts. The gifts God's given you have been deposited in you. They just need to be fanned into flame and developed. I didn't know about that. Well, listen, it's like this. Like, do you realize that up to two weeks ago, I did not realize that when you swipe left on your iPhone, there's all kinds of little extra goodies in here? You know, so thank you to all, you know, NSA or whoever's listening into this conversation. I know that's in here too. But, uh, you know, I was in on the, uh, like, the compass, and I was like, this is really cool. And I swiped left, and it has a level, like a level with two circles on it. I've been hanging pictures and shelves and I have to, you know, you get the torpedo. I had no idea that right inside my, I've had an iPhone for like years. And I had no idea it had a level in it. Changed my whole life. Now I'm going around measuring all kinds of things don't even need to be measured. I'm leveling. I'm like, well, the refrigerator's all right. Oh, dishwasher's a little bit out. We need to work on this. It's like, I don't know how I lived before I knew that the whole time it was in here. And I had no idea. It makes me say, what else is in here? I'm looking up all those little articles, you know, 10 hacks that you didn't know were in your iPhone. I'm like, some of them scare me. Others of them are cool. Okay. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive a whole new operating system. Why would you settle for just knowing the one of the two things that it can do? You realize in the Holy Spirit, you have all kinds of stuff available to you you've never used. Being an authentic disciple simply says, I'm going to be true to who I am in Christ. And I haven't even fully explored what it is, but I want to know. You're telling me I've got power? I'm not, it's not, I'm not using it. I'm not shooting any laser beams anywhere. I'm praying for dead people. They're not coming back to life. It's a journey. It's calling those things out, calling those things alive, being more aware of that, seeking after that, asking God to teach you how to use it, getting around people that know how to use that. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. Last week, I'm down. Two things collided in my life recently. Uh, not literally, uh, but recently. Um, I, uh, a pastor in the area, Pastor Mark, he pastors a church plant over in Towson. That's a, it's 10 years old now. I have about 200 people, about the same size of ours. He heard about me from somebody at the office and reached out to me and said, hey, let's have coffee. I went down and I met him, and he said, uh, he said uh, I'm actually going to step down here, so I know that might mess up the camera. But um, he says to me, he says, um, he says uh, I'm a Baptist. Or I, he said, I was a Baptist. I said, okay, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, I did not believe that some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are described in the New Testament were supposed to be used today. I said, okay. He said, well, how do you feel? I said, well, I'm, I said, I'm, Pentecostal and part of the Assemblies of God Church. I said, but my experience in my own life, you know, the, the Bible teaches me that they're still available for today, and I've sought that out in my own life and only sought to be used, and I've seen them demonstrated and used powerfully. He says, it's interesting you say that. He said, now I know I was supposed to talk to you. He said, about a year ago, I was sitting at that window, and he, you know, we met at Starbucks, which is his office. How he gets work done there among all the moms and kids running around at 10 on a Wednesday morning, I don't know. I could have that at home, so I go to the office. That's my refuge. He he says to me, he says, I was sitting in that seat, and he, he said, I was reading this book, and he mentioned the author to me, which is someone I had read a lot of, and he said, uh, there's a statement the author makes in there. He says, I got to a certain place in my life where I just finally held up my hands, and, I, and he said, God, my theology has run out, but I'm reading about a God who 
the God of history, parted oceans and seas, brought dead people back to life, healed sick people, set people free from any type of ailment, could provide for people. These demand, the Bible's filled with all these miracles. He's like, I don't see them, but I want to. And the author wrote, finally, a man I can work through. And Pastor Mark says to me, in that moment right there, I shut my book and I said, and I was just quiet before God. He said, as clear as I felt God speak to me, he said, Mark, I've seen the last eight years of everything you can do. Good job. Planted a church, grew a church. I said, Mark, are you ready to see what I can do? Mark said, right then and there, something came over me. He started to describe what Acts describes as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was saved. He had the Spirit of God living inside of me. He had, he had power. But he said, I was lacking a certain courage, power, and boldness that I see lived out in the book of Acts. What Acts describes is a second distinct experience that happens after salvation for people who wanted it. And it was specifically to give them extra power and boldness to go make disciples. That's exactly what it was for. And most Christians that I talk to, that's where we're stuck. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. But I just don't feel like I have enough courage, power, and boldness to share my faith, to attract people to Christ, to have the words to say. And he says, right there at Starbucks, he's like, I started speaking in other tongues. It's like, and that's not Baptist. And I was scared and I was afraid. He said, fast forward two years later, it's all I can think about. He's like, our church now, no longer a Baptist church, we're a non-denominational church. We have a prayer room after service. People who are sick come uh, either before or after a doctor's visit, and we pray over them. We've seen people healed. People in our congregation are attracted to that. They say, Pastor Mark, how do we learn how to move that way? He's like, I'm not sure, but let's just go after it together. So every Sunday afternoon, we just study the New Testament together. We pray, we talk, we practice. He's like, I'm just so hungry to find other people who are willing to be authentic followers of Jesus and say, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is who we are in Christ. Why aren't we living that way? And it just spoke to my heart because that's who I've been for 15 years, and then for some reason when I moved here, I just got intimidated again. And I know God's given me gifts that he's, he's given me gifts to see people healed and delivered and set free. And for whatever reason, I just haven't surrendered those gifts back to God. Maybe I was afraid or what, what you would think or um, I know in the book of Acts, it says there's all kinds of different groups of people that when they see things like that happen, one group says they're drunk and they're crazy. One group says, I don't understand it, but I'm going to stay and watch. And then another group just says, something's going on here. What do I do to be part of it? So last week when I was praying for somebody in the altar, God spoke to me very clearly. This is how he wants to end today's service is there's some specific groups of people that he wants to minister to today. And he started telling me specifically what they were. And so what I want to do uh, is just in these last few moments, and I'm very aware of the time, it's right here in front of me. We, we've got a plan for all of this, okay? Um, I want to identify the groups of people as specifically as God showed them to me because I believe he knew that you'd be here today. And if I'm not obedient, you might miss out on something huge in your life. This is part of who I need to be to be authentically who God's called me to be is I need to recognize that when God, who I am in Christ is not insecure, it's secure. Who I am in Christ is not afraid of this moment, it runs for these moments. Who I am in Christ is one that says, I would rather, I would rather obey what I think is God than resist what I think is God. And so the first thing he said is, I want you to pray over people who are stuck with chronic, repeated, overwhelming feelings of shame. Um, I would describe what I was praying about. If you're at a place in your life where you just say, I am ashamed of me. That's a hard thing to admit, first of all. I, I understand that. You're ashamed of how you look. You're ashamed of your present circumstances in life, whether it's where you're at in your education or business, where you're at financially or not at financially. You're ashamed of things that have happened in your past that you know you've moved on from, you've asked for forgiveness for, but that doesn't seem like enough. It keeps being replayed in your mind. I want you to know shame is not a tool of the Holy Spirit. Shame is a tool of the enemy to hijack your future. Who you are in Christ are not those things. 
and the enemy has sold you a false bill of goods and told you that you are what in fact you are not. Adam and Eve were ashamed when God came and found them in their situation of sin. And they tried to cover it up themselves with leaves and branches. And God still saw through it because, you know, nothing you can do on your own is going to overcome those feelings of shame. What did God do? He made, them, he made them new clothes out of animal skins. Well, how did he get animal skins? They weren't just laying around. Something had to die. And then God took the sacrifice. He applied it to them, covered over their sinfulness. I want you to know you don't have to kill an animal today. That would be a really weird way to end a service. Jesus, the perfect lamb, has died on the cross for you. And if you've asked him forgiven you, he has. And I want to give you a chance to step away from that shame this morning. I don't care what your story is. I don't need to know the details. But what I felt like I needed to do was just appeal, if that applies to you, I need to give you something tangible you can do to walk that out today. I do want to lay hands on you. I do want to pray for you just briefly. I want to pray that that feeling of shame will be broken off of your life and that you'll walk in that identity. That's not who you are in Christ. I've been sent here to remind you that's who you are in Christ. We need to leave that shame and those other things. We need to call them for what they are. That's the enemy, not God. And I want you to walk free from that. I am going to ask you in just a moment, if that's you, I just want you to come down here so I can pray for you. Well, pastors, a lot of people looking around. There are. But I know most of these people. And they're not going to be imagining, I wonder what they're down here for. They're going to be praying for you. They're going to be thrilled for you. Many of them have made that same walk in their life. This is not a coincidence. This is God offering you freedom. It's a word of knowledge. God knows something I don't know in the natural. He's telling me to tell you because he wants to build you up. And anybody in the room that might be skeptical about who God is and does he really move this way, it shows him he really is that way.